Hello again, Josh Reed here, producer of Take a Moment. I, along with co-hosts Nathan Bennett and Mari Yamaguchi, want to take a moment to acknowledge that this coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic has created unprecedented challenges to meetings, businesses, and life for many of us across the world. While we're taking a hiatus and recording more episodes this season to respect the health and well-being of our colleagues and guests, we hope you take a moment to listen to this previously recorded but new episode. As we navigate a new normal, from how we engage with each other to how we do business, our goal is to make sure we continue to find moments of information in our episodes that you can apply today. We hope that you, your families, friends, and colleagues are all staying healthy and safe. And please enjoy this episode featuring Robert Ritchie and Glenn Nethercutt. Welcome back to Take a Moment. I am one of your hosts, Nathan Bennett. And this is producer Josh Reed. And today we had two awesome guests. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to be in studio with Mari and Nate for this episode, but they had a chance to sit down with Robert Ritchie, the SVP of Genesis Cloud here at Genesis, as well as Glenn Nethercut, the chief architect of what is now known as Genesis Cloud. They uh, were instrumental in the implementation of Genesis Cloud, even before when it was called Pure Cloud. And they know the product itself, as well as being able to sit down and have a conversation about the knit and grit behind what makes Genesis Cloud run. Absolutely. And not only do they kind of take us through the early days, like before there was Pure Cloud that would become Genesis Cloud and kind of give us a sense of that startup feeling you know, back in the day and giving us a sense of how the sausage is made, if you will. <laughs> but you also get to understand the humans behind the design. And I yep. think that's really powerful. They've designed Genesis Cloud. This is an incredible platform, this amazing tool for businesses, but they designed it with the human in mind. They designed it with the user experience in mind. And that's the way they keep innovating in Genesis Cloud as well with that level of not only intelligence, but also empathy and understanding why our customers find it important. So really, really great insight into who these guys are, what makes them tick, and why Genesis Cloud is the platform that it is. They understand that AI is the future of technology, but they take it down to its most important feature of the fact that it is human enabled. It is set up with the user in mind so that not only can they implement it easily within their contact center, but also it can run as smooth as possible. Absolutely. If you're ever wondering what the first days of Genesis Cloud look like, then you're going to love this episode. And I think you'll learn a lot from Robert and Glenn. So we hope you take a moment and listen with us. Robert Ritchie, Glenn Nethercutt, thank you so much for joining us on Take a Moment. The two of you are some of the most brilliant people that Mari and I uh, have met and get the privilege to work amongst. And I agree with you. Yes, yes, you do agree. (laughs) Yeah. I Actually, we were just queuing you up so that you would say back to us that we were the smartest people that you guys get to work with. Yeah, it failed miserably. If not, I mean, you could have gone, you could have said you guys are beautiful, you're handsome, you're vivacious. I like to think I'm at the Glenn Nethercut level. Oh, well, we can't always be. We can't always be. I want to start off with some hard-hitting questions. First of all, 
I want you to tell me if you prefer the DC universe uh, over the Marvel universe or vice versa. Marvel, definitely Marvel. Marvel. Glenn says Marvel. 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 We're both on the Marvel. Okay. Yeah. So now that we're in the Marvel universe, give us your or who you think is the most powerful uh, superhero among hero, not villain, among the Marvel universe. I'm gonna go Doctor Strange. Nice, nice. Because uh, that whole bending of time and space and reality thing. It does come in handy. Take it strong. from me. Yeah. It comes. It comes in handy. It's the only way I get my job done. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually the Hulk. The Hulk. Yeah. So he actually defeated the aliens if you follow the comic series. Mm -hmm. So he was the only one who could do that. All, all of the aliens. Idea. Yeah. So Thanos actually. I think it's it's interesting to the differences between these two gentlemen for those of you who who don't get the privilege of uh, gazing into their their eyes you have glenn nethercutt who's a very sort of doctor strange sort of person and then i can totally imagine thank you yes yes that's a compliment that's a compliment as somebody who's uh sometimes a little bit too smart for his own good you know and does clearly have the ability to bend time and space which is how you get your work done but then also uh compare and contrast to the robert ritchie in front of us who is somebody that i can see hulking out oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> at any given point and very handsome and very handsome of course but also brilliant saying. goes without saying same exactly exactly right? yeah uh so kudos to you both how did you get involved in this thing that is building technology? What was the impetus of the interest? Because I think a lot of things that we do as adults, we our interest is sparked when we're kids. What was the thing for you that sparked your interest to get you where you are today? I think I think most of the geeks like us have a similar story where we, you know, for me, I'm older. So it's in the 80s, you know, the Commodore 64, we were geeking out a long time before we could make money at it. And then over time, we figured out, oh, we can make a lot of money doing this. And so we fall, fall and tell, I'll, I'll go that route and make some money. But the reality is we're just drawn towards technology and the cool things you can do with it. And how fast it, I mean, between the 80s and today, it's such a bright future with AI and all that other stuff happening. So we're just geeked out about that. And I can't believe somebody's paying me for it. <laughs> do you remember your first personal computer? Commodore 64. Was it Commodore 64? Do you want to tell us how old you were when you had it? So I was born in 1968. So, you know, I think this is probably 83. Four, maybe a five. I can't remember when exactly came out. Okay. Right on that period. So I guess I was maybe 14, 15, 16, something like that. But you saw it and you were like, holy crap, this is like. I just started so cool writing stuff it. for it. Yeah. Because, you know, I, you know, my, my first program was like figuring out how long it took to cut the grass. And so you know, <laughs> my father's like, you know, that's not going to do anybody any good. That's so stupid. You know, it's like, well, I can do anything. We'll do something. And I couldn't figure out what to do. But I just knew it was cool. The first time, you know, he, he had a little AM radio station. So I, I automated his radio station in the late 80s, early 90s, because they have uh, tones that come in. Network plays and local station plays and a commercial plays. And so I automated that. There's this tone detector thing that comes down and switches uh, the stream. And so I was able to automate that. And then he saw that it was cool, too. So I got him involved with that. You automated his radio stations. Yeah, where there didn't have to be a DJ there. In the 80s. Like in probably 90, probably 1989, 90, late 80s, early 90s. This is horribly depressing to me. Yeah. Because the things that I was doing with similar technology when I at was 14, at 14, <laughs> I had one of those little mini cassette recorders. And I was amazed that you could change the speed on it to sound like Alvin and the Chipmunks. So that's what I was doing in my room by myself. I would record myself on the slow thing, singing a song, and then play it like Alvin and the Chipmunks on the high setting. And that's why you are where you are today. <laughs> well... Glenn, what about you? What sparked that interest in all things technology? Well, for me, yeah, similar similar story about early computing. For me, it was a TRS-80 Model 3 color computer was the first one. Wow. That I had. Wow. So, uh, it was Circa even, 19. Oof. This would have been mid-80s. Okay. 
I guess. Hooked up to TV, had the cassette, didn't even have a disc drive, right? It was just a cassette recorder where you would uh, record tones on it instead of actually writing onto a disc. That was how we could save files day after day. Yeah, for me, it was, I don't know, the closest thing to magic. Mm. Like you could take something that you could completely just uh, envision in your mind and turn it into a thing that other people could experience. So for me, yeah, it was a beginning of a journey lifelong as a, as a maker of varying sorts, whether a little bit of hobbyist electronics and ham radio or a little bit of model rocketry, you know, it's always been a building kind of fascination for me. Is there, is there, are you understanding now why I favorably compared you to Dr. Strange? After your <laughs> response? The, the likelihood I have to blow something up? Exactly. Uh, possible. It looks like tinkering is a theme for both of you to just kind of tinker with something or you see a problem and just say, hey, let me go and get my hands into it and fix it and make it better. Both of you have been with Genesis Cloud for a while, but not a lot of people know the true origin story of it. And like all superheroes. Before it was Genesis yes, Cloud. We love origin stories because of this whole superhero thing. Tell us a little bit about how it all started. You know, uh, this is uh, 2012. So January time frame 2012. I did a little startup and I was really excited with that. And, you know, and I was happy, but this big fancy CEO calls and says, I want to meet you at the airport. And he, he literally flew his plane down there to meet me. And I was very like, I did not want any part of this big company. Uh, I show up and there's, you know, I think 20 people in suits. I get apparently invited a lot of people and I was there in a t-shirt and jeans and, you know, Randy Carter was there. So you guys <laughs> just talked to him recently. Yep. So he comes out and he sees me. He remembers seeing me because I stood out so much. And I walk into the room and say, you know, if you're looking for those people, then I'm not your person. So don't waste, let's don't waste each other's time and let's move on together. Uh, but no, he said, no, no, I really want to talk to you. And so, you know, I really was talking, I talked then about the cloud. This is going to be the coolest thing ever. You know, you really should embrace this thing. It's the future. And, uh, and he bought into it. He was doing a startup basically. And he was trying to figure out where it was going to end up. He had like Knoxville, Tennessee. I don't know where else. And Raleigh was one of them. And he says, okay, you're my chief architect. And so he hired me there. He offered, Just right there on I, the before, spot. Like how yeah. long was this job interview? This was, it ended up being two hours. It was a long discussion. Eventually he gave me something I couldn't refuse, an offer I could not refuse, and I took it. But, you know, I'm great at selling those ideas and, you know, making them real, we did. We did a good job that first year. Uh, and, I, and I think he saw the promise and that's when he said, you know what, this startup's going to be bigger than a startup. It's going to transform my current business because he was the CEO of a public company that did something. And he saw the promise and he, that's when the coin Pure Cloud got, he termed that coin from that. This is really a pure cloud solution. It's pure. It's not like all the others where they're not. And so he coined that term, wrote a white paper. And if you read it from 2012, you would see, wow, he made that real. They invested $90 million into building it. So they were all in on this. And that was a big part of it. But the progression, you know, Glenn Heathercutt comes along maybe a year later, I think, and uh, just took it to a level that I never could imagine. That's why I'm still here. Frankly, I do that a lot in my career. If you look back three or four years, transform something, go on to the next thing. I get bored. And I'm still here because it's not boring. It's pretty exciting because of the levels that this guy's taken it to. It's pretty amazing. And I just want to see what happens. What was that original idea? What was that original seed that got this investor to say, hey, I want to talk to yeah, you? Yeah, what differentiated you out of all the other you know, prospects that he could have made offers to or ideas that he might have been interested in? What do you think really sold him on it? Yeah, so he was doing a startup that was a little, he called it Orgbook. And so it was Facebook of org organizations for corporate America, effectively. I think that's what his first idea was. And a lot of what I talked to him about was how to scale. If you're going to take over the world, you got to think about that. How are you going to be secure? You know, your architecture, cloud, you really need to do this. And so what happened with this guy, he applied that to his current company, Interactive Intelligence. 
And I almost feel like he hired me because of that. Almost because the, the, the startup was great, but it never went anywhere. You know, they ended up acquiring us. But I think he saw those concepts early on and he just said, you know what? This can transform my current business, I think. But we still built it out. And, you know, in fact, it was pretty exciting even during the org span days, the org book. And we changed our name several times. But when we got into the pure cloud part of it, it got really exciting because it's real. I mean, customers, real customers, real money, real product. So uh, you had the product to a certain point. Was it still under development before Glenn came along? Or had you, was it so functional? Had it been released? So if you heard Don talk, it was, oh, the product's ready. But the reality was, is by the time Glenn got there, we we're probably two years away from a real product that we could sell, I believe. And it was it was very much focused on a, on a collaboration space kind of a play, which apparently was a little bit ahead of its time. Maybe the reason that it didn't take off, be, if, yeah. if it had had its own uh, runway, if you will, to, to keep operating for longer, maybe that would have been the next Yammer, the next, I don't know, Could have been. insert yeah. some big companies here that are yeah. currently doing things in the Slack. chat space. Yeah, yeah, maybe that one. But it very quickly turned into, well, we are also a communications company. We're also a CX company. Like that's still about people communicating. How do we how do we move things out of a pure collaboration space and in an in-consumer play back towards an enterprise shift, which is when I think the real money starts flowing into it, right? Mm. Yeah, when we came there, it was those of us that were working on the pure cloud side of it were one floor below them, you would have thought that the bigger company was the other way around because they were the only ones that had the coffee maker. I remember having to go up and <laughs> actually steal coffee from Robert's office in order to get my caffeine fix in the mornings. But yeah, there were maybe five or 10 of us uh, on that floor at the time. And we were very much focused on the telephony and eventually on the chat side of things and then started merging together the notion of these directory services and user profiles and how that actually applies to a social graph of people, whether we're talking about business users or people just trying to chat inside of their company or if we're talking about in customers where we're trying to do CX. So I think that's when we really started to, to blend those concepts together. Well, and how do they get your attention, Glenn? Like what interested you in coming aboard this like scrappy little team who is building this thing? Yeah, so I, I sort of jumped in with the expectation that I was gonna run architecture around an analytics program, honestly. Uh, so it was gonna be a lot of big data, a lot of that style of number crunching, which I have some history in that. And this was a target rich environment for people's behaviors and, and how they interact. And that seems like a very powerful space to have huge amounts of data at your fingertips. So I thought that would be a pretty interesting place to play. But very quickly realized that we were you know, in the midst of really investing on the cloud side of it. And frankly, there were very few of us coming to bear with a lot of service style knowledge. So just sort of eventually found myself gravitating towards more of an architectural guidance role and an oversight role and trying to kind of herd the cats, if you will, as we were going through the growth of, of people coming on board to, to work on a service-based business as opposed to a shrink-wrap product business, which is what they've had before. So for people who don't know, tell us what architecture means in the realm of cloud. In this and, space. In this space. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of parallels to actual architecture. I'm sure that's why we gravitated to the name. Maybe there's not as much rigor and governing bodies around it, and perhaps <laughs> there should be. But I think it's it's the notion of understanding not just how some code that you write works, which is very much entry level. When you, when you start becoming a developer, you're focused on solving a specific problem. When you get into the realm of architectures, when you're making multiple systems talk together, making them actually function as a cohesive whole, even though they're independent components, and then figuring out ways to kind of make the sum of them greater than the parts, right? The, the total is greater than the sum of the parts. And then figuring out how to do that in a way that works at scale for 25 people, but also 25,000 people. 
do all of that in a secure environment that you can also have get incredibly good margins to make our investors happy. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, those are sort of the, the puzzle pieces that to me guide us uh, on, on the architecture team. What were some of the, in the early development of Pure Cloud back then, what's become Genesis Cloud now, what were some of the early pitfalls that you experienced? Some of the early challenges where there are like hiccups along the way that you had to figure out and were like, oh crap, how do we get over this hurdle? Yeah, one thing I'd like to comment on that is because, you know, this is often a misconception with the way Pure Cloud is run today as well, which is it's the same problems that we had back then, which is, you know, right off the bat when I got hired, he said, hey, I want to hire 55 people by the end of the year. We're going to really blow this up and put money into it. and We're going to do it right. And I always said, you know, no, give me 10 all-stars by the end of the year, 10 all top-notch, top-of-their-field all-stars, and they'll outperform 55 mediocre people any day. And so I think that was a really key that he bought into that and allowed us to do that, give them all the tools, all the money, all the anything they need to get this done. And so all-stars attract all-stars. That's how I think we got Glenn. He was, he, I think he was intrigued because there's a lot of other people here that were doing their advanced technology-wise. He's like, you know, For I sure. can learn something from that. And keeping that separate, you know, you, you look at books like Innovator's Dilemma. That's the things they talk about. When you're trying to make change within a company, it's really difficult. It's incremental innovation. Mm -hmm. If you really want to, you know, disrupt you want to be outside of that company. You want to be in a complete cocoon somewhere. And so we were a cocoon out here in Raleigh. And so that was, oh, the Raleigh office, there's a cult. <laughs> and, you know, and you know, you got to drink whiskey to get to those guys. And you know, it's all these things. And it, it doesn't hurt. Really that, I mean, it yeah, doesn't it helps, hurt. Yeah. You know, and, I, and I believe that to maintain that and to maintain the control and the decision-making has been a constant battle. This is really a good way. We got it covered, but it's difficult to let go, especially if you've been doing it for 20 years and you you know how hard it is to do this. Right. Yeah. So you're, I mean, you're, you're talking about, listen, we need to keep a very tight team of experts as opposed to just keep expanding, keep expanding. You keep a tight team, but you can let a few people do really big problems, solve really big problems, really big uh, projects. You don't need to throw a bunch of people at it. And so when you have a big company of 5,000 people, they want to throw bodies at things. And often you really just need a, a mind, like a nethercut mind to figure out analytics and how you can deal with a lot of data. You don't need 20 people making a decision. Early on, I'll give you a little quick parallel, but uh, this kind of drives me a lot. I always bring this story up because it does. Uh, but when I was 16, I poured concrete for a living, like concrete sidewalks. And, uh, and I remember that the, the team that I was with was four people, and they were just excellent, top of their field, the best concrete people in the world, I thought. The truck drivers would come in, and their mixture had to be exactly perfect, and everyone was scared. And we would often work for miles building, uh, pouring sidewalk with another company that was like 20, 30 people doing the same thing. And we would be 10 times faster and 10 times better. And I always go back to my hometown and I say, I poured that sidewalk and it's still there. And look at theirs, it's all cracked up. And I just bought into that theory that you can really, if you really get that fine-tuned team, you don't need a bunch of people. So I think just get the top field, set the expect expectations very, very high. And I think you can reach those. And I think it takes less people than people realize. You guys are like the Avengers of cloud architecture. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I like that's, yeah, that's, you weren't saying it, but you were kind of saying it. Well, I wanted to be that. You That's wanted we're, to be that. We're aspiring to be that. We're not that. We're, right, we're of course. We're aspiring to be it. Glenn, what do you, how do you feel about that? Were there some things, uh, early hiccups that you were like, oh man, how are we going to overcome this? And then you guys just huddled and got it done? Yeah, there were I mean, there were plenty. The, the early days, I'd say we had a lot of brittleness around deployments and how we did it. And we came up with completely different techniques, right? We went from upgrading servers and mutating them in place, which is what we were doing for a long time, to brand new tech where we would create brand new servers every time we deploy, right? The cloud gives us affordances that we didn't have in the past. So if you reposition your thinking a little bit, and we weren't alone in it, 
right? There are other industries that were doing it, but mostly consumer facing, right? Not enterprise facing companies. So we sort of took a lot of those concepts and figured out how to make them apply to enterprise where there are enterprise challenges. I think one of the pitfalls that we maybe from a process and business level faced early on was positioning. We were very much positioned towards the tiny markets, right? That that's what we thought the cloud was actually going to be able to accommodate. And by we, I think we mean sales, the marketing organization at the time, even the leadership team, because frankly, we didn't have the proof points to say that the enterprise was ready for it yet. And they might not have been, but that landscape has certainly shifted over time and a lot faster than many people anticipated. So I think that's been one of the ongoing challenges to figure out how to reframe these conversations every year to understand which, which are the right tools to use to attack certain problems. And you think about that shift, right? Just in a couple of years, you're only going to deal with the customers that have 20 seats or less. And now we here we have Uber, 30,000 seats. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's a big mind shift. And they're very different, right? The problems that you face supporting both of those are, are very divergent. And the idea that we actually support both concurrently with the exact same solution is a pretty powerful testament to, to its ubiquity, I think. As an enterprise customer, you were talking about how things have been, right? Like they're like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. What's a couple of proof points or things that you would say to take them away from just not saying, let me keep doing things the way they are and focusing on cloud? Honestly, security profiles are actually one of the things that comes up a lot. It's easy to go in and explain how we actually are safer and more secure in cloud. There's a story I go back to that I think we actually mentioned it one year at a sales kickoff in a panel on stage. Uh, someone was talking to a rather large credit company out there that had had a, a data breach and they were talking to us. And we said, well, what would be your, uh, your, your comfort level, if you will, on trusting a cloud provider for your CX solution? And they're like, why do you ask? Well, because of this recent breach you had. And they're like, oh, the, the breach wasn't actually in the cloud, it was actually on premises. <laughs> so wow. being able to kind of show over time, a track record always wins, numbers always win. And I think that's another powerful thing that we've got on our side with, with the cloud implementation is that we see all the things. Right. We have telemetry that it, it's not just a build it and then infer how well we did. We are measuring how well we do. We can see when people use it, when their behaviors change when they start solving new problems in a way that we didn't anticipate, we, we see that all the time. People don't use our platform to always solve the problems that we expect. Hello there, it's me again, Josh Reed here. And in today's short commercial break, we continue on the topic of Genesis Cloud, previously Pure Cloud. During this episode, Glenn and Robert talk about the early days of what is now Genesis Cloud and the thought behind what a true cloud offer can do for you and your telephony business. To learn more about the features of Genesis Cloud and how it can meet your company's needs, check out the resources below on genesis.com. You can register to watch our monthly demos to see Genesis Cloud in action, both live and on demand, watch this detailed introduction to Genesis Cloud, and see how other Genesis customers are using the technology today. And as always, thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe and share and stay tuned for the next episode of Take a Moment. As uh, kind of being among the founding fathers of what is now Genesis Cloud, what are you most proud of in how far it's come? And what are you most excited about to see how far it's going to go? I mean, I guess the, the, 
the span of it across the globe has been pretty impressive looking at the sheer size of it. Reliability numbers are always the thing that we're going to chase and try to go higher and higher. But honestly, we've had some pretty stellar results, like months and months and months of 100% platform uptime in, in particular regions. Couple that with the amount of growth we've had on the customer base side. I don't know too many people that can actually attest to that, that they're, they're literally building the rocket ship while they're on it. And it's going faster <laughs> and faster and somehow magically picking up additional passengers while it's in flight. Robert, what about you? Yeah, I'm very uh, happy with the integrity of the whole thing from the beginning, right? We had a startup kind of mentality. Uh, we're going to disrupt. A few people can disrupt. And now we're like 800 people strong. And I think we've kept that culture of innovation. And so I'm really excited about that. I mean, people are still just as geeked up about it today as they were four years ago. So I'm, I'm very happy the culture is maintained through that. I'm also, you know, really impressed with as much as I talk about startups, you know, you think about how we got here. The, the all-in approach in the beginning to $90 million to build it out. And then the, the grown-up days of like go-to-market strategy and how you're going to market and, and support this product to, I think, Tony today actually really excites me a lot because he is one of those guys. I mean, I heard that, you know, at least the, I have ADD, so I only heard 10 <laughs> minutes of the podcast. Tony Bates, the new CEO, is the Tony that you're talking about, just for our listeners who don't know. Yeah, which is great, you know, and he's, it's an intimidating to listen to that and then come in here after after that. But he's one of those guys you can just tell you can you heard you hear his passion. I mean, that guy's all in. He's super uh, motivated and he's very quick to make a decision when he knows the answer. He's not afraid of anything. He's not afraid of failure. And so that excites us because that's how we want to see that leadership. And we love that. So I'm geeked up about him, too. I guess I'm also really proud to look at uh, across what our customer base is today. I had the pleasure of being out at our site in, in Galway a bit ago, talking with our AI team that's there and was explaining to them, I guess, to try to rally the troops a little bit because we often inside the walls, will talk about us being a contact center company. That's certainly what our pedigree happens to be. But the reality is we're a lot more of customer experience as a service than that. And I just sort of rattled off to them some of the different industries that we serve, that we service, right? It's, it's not just, here's an IVR call tree for you to go in and check your bank balance. I mean, that's a convenient rubric for us to go to and say, ah, this is an, this is an example use case. But we have like voting support systems in Canada. We have suicide prevention hotlines. We have providers that actually work for first responders to direct firefighters and police units across, across the globe. And they leverage our platform to do that. Like that is something we should be proud of and we should talk about. And how important is that for those folks that are writing the code to really understand that they are impacting real human lives? I think it's crucial if for no other reason than it, it even provides more value for your work and anything you value more, I think you do better, right? I think everybody wants to feel like they make an impact and to, to be able to connect that from writing a line of code to making someone's life in the middle of the worst possible day that they could be having a little bit better or to perhaps even save one, that's a, that's a phenomenal thing to, to suddenly believe that you can have that kind of impact from, like I said, doing, doing a little bit of magic on a keyboard with mm -hmm. a TRS-80 in your parents' basement. <laughs> yeah. And you, know, you talk about fundamental innovation. That's an area that's, I think, understated, which is, I mean, the idea that a person writing code could build a service and deploy it, but then they're on pager duty for when things go down. You're like, are they ready for this? I mean, what's going to happen Thanksgiving night, 3 a.m.? Are they going to do it then? And we have all these very critical services on the line. So we, we bet that they would step up to that. They are aware of all that, and they are ready for it. They're ready to step up for that responsibility. And we have years of track record that they, they have stepped up on that. And, and a great example was uh, just a few weeks ago, Australia, Amazon had a humongous outage. In fact, our architecture stood up really well. We didn't have an impact whatsoever. But there was uh, 12 people on the call. I counted at, at uh, 2 a.m., 
uh, and it wasn't even an issue for us. They were just watching it. Hmm. So that's a fundamental. I mean, a lot of people would never have guessed that that would have worked, that kind of model. And that's a testament to not only the technology, the platform, the product, but also the people that are working with you, alongside you, and also to help support Genesis customers. It yeah. says a lot to their, to their dedication to it as well. We do talk a lot about failures uh, because we're sort of fascinated, I guess, maybe in the, in the macabre or uh, <laughs> whatever. But I'm curious to know from each of your individual perspectives, what has been your favorite failure? The thing that really uh, crashed and burned at the time, but maybe that was ultimately beneficial or that you learned something from either in your personal life or professional life. So when I think about failure, there's, there is one story that comes to mind for me. And so uh, my first job out of college uh, was with the Securities and Exchange Commission building this Edgar system. And it's a very critical system. It's where every company that's a public company and a lot of companies, you know, they file their financial information, their IPO information, a lot of private information about org changes. There's all kinds of official, timely submissions to that system. So it's highly critical, can never be down ever. Uh, and the first project they they put me on is, you know, coming out of college was the disaster recovery. Uh, Tommy, for you, Glenn. So, uh, so I got to work on the disaster recovery system. And so, uh, you know, with a team of about 12 people. And uh, I was like, hey, this Unix thing's really cool. We should do this whole thing. And I, re I mixed the whole thing up. We redesigned the whole system from scratch. Very similar here. We built it up from scratch, but it was very different, which is a, a big problem for disaster recovery. You don't want your disaster system to be completely different from the production system. But that's what we did. I was, I was 20 something, you know, that's, you're not so smart, but I think it was a week after we got completed with the project. We said, we're done. A huge fire in the data centers and the systems oh, were going yeah. down and they called us in. They said, you need to come in and we need to switch over to your disaster recovery system. And when I got there, I realized I was the only person from my team that showed up 15 people. And some people were very, very senior and they just didn't think it was going to work. Basically they thought this is not going to work. I'm not going there for that. And so I went down to that data center and I think the chairman of the SEC was even there, but I know our leadership was there, all these VPs around me. And there's this vision in my head. I had three phones to my head. I had this huge, you know, just organizing the whole switchover. And I, for me, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't realize the importance of that system at the time. I was just a software engineer, but they were, I just, I realized how important it was when I saw 20 people standing over watching every keystroke and they said, Hey, Robert, you know, no how confident pressure. do you feel of this? And I said, Oh, it's going to go great. This is going to be awesome. And it, went off without a single problem. It was the most amazing thing. Everything worked. Some things that we never tested worked. And it just and they never actually switched back to the original system. They really? said, this is performing so much better. But if I had known now the risk that I was taking at that time, I would never would have done that ever. But so knowing, you know, then that was a very exciting time for me. But that is, that is one thing that no one should ever do in their right mind ever. There's something huge... really charming about that youthful, like ignorance, Optimism. arrogance sort of thing. Yeah, just like... No, of course I can do this. Yeah, that would have been national news big time. <laughs> that would have been right there with and my big headphones. You would have, right no, we would have we would have seen you in the on the cover oh, of the New York the Times. Oh, that's the guy that bought that system that sunk it all. Yeah, and Glenn, what about you? Favorite failure? Oh God, there's so many. There's so many to choose from. I I, I too share your Top your love favorite failures. Your, your love of the macabre. <laughs> no, so here one of the teams that reports in through architecture is our service reliability engineering team. And they are sort of the chaos engineers, if you will, of Pure Cloud. So you would love them. They are perhaps, uh, if, if I'm a superhero, they are my super villain minions. <laughs> Is that possible? Uh, I'm not sure how that breaks out. Anything's possible. You're the one betting time and space. Yeah, yeah, anything's that's, possible. That's, they, they think that they're doing evil, but they're actually doing good. That's good. basically what's going on. So there have been a lot of really impressive 
uh, simulated failures that we have created. The best kind of failure is one that you learn from that you didn't have, mm. right? Like we create lots of failures that teams have to experience. Ideally, they do it in a very measured and uh, controlled manner, right? In our testing environments and not our production environments. Uh, and then other teams learn from their mistakes. And we certainly have had plenty. There've been whole conceptual shifts that we've done around how we bulkhead, how we protect PureCloud. There's lots of metaphors in the tech space that are drawn from engineering and some of them come from uh, nautical engineering. So bulkheads in ships are exactly what uh, it sounds like. So prevent the entire ship from sinking if one cabin is filling with water. So we have definitely had, as Robert said, some doozies where things have cascaded across these dozens at the time, maybe hundreds of microservices where a single point of failure can actually ripple across this because it's they're all dependent, right? They, there's this giant mesh. So over time, we've learned how to close those bulkheads and to degrade the experience, right? There's no way it can be perfect if something is completely on fire, yet save the ship, if you will. And some of them have been vendor related, absolutely. The cloud is not a safe place, right? Things break all the time, as Werner Vogels says. Uh, <laughs> every, everything fails all the time, and it's true. We've been on calls where it's been AWS incidents that have lasted for uh, you know long spans of time, uh, where we've been waiting with their engineers, or interestingly enough, where we've actually pointed out some problems to them before they realized it. Mm. Those have been fun to work through. Yeah. Uh, they weren't particularly enjoyable in, in that you know there was in impact the to us at the moment. But looking back, it's like that caliber of engineers, both internally in the company and outside, that we get to work with on these types of problems. We're not solving easy problems. Uh, we're solving hard ones. And at the end of the day, there's uh, something rewarding about working on that kind of a challenge and to work with, say, the hypervisor team out of South Africa, along with the Dynamo team, the, the data storage team in, uh, in California or Seattle, and, and do all of this with our global workforce at the same time and come up with a system that the next year, when the exact same type of problem happens, our customers never knew. Hmm. And they never even saw a blip on the radar while we were awake, maybe at two o'clock in the morning, because we have telemetry that tells us to, <laughs> we didn't have to actually do anything to fix it. That's that's the best part. Hmm. It's kind of what you going back to what you guys said about building the rocket ship while you're on it. Sometimes there's going to be bumps in that journey, but you're there to tweak those little things that you need to tweak because you're both very hyper observant and trying to anticipate what might occur and plan accordingly, so that you know some sort of inevitable problem doesn't occur. Yeah. That's the hard problem. What are you most excited about, about the continued development of Genesis Cloud? What would you like to see it do in the next year or two years? I mean, we talk about AI a lot and its ubiquity. I'd like to see that not just customer focused, which we're obviously investing a lot in those programs, which is great, right? Everything from deflection tactics with bots to using predictive routing algorithms to better speech and ASR and predictive engagement, right? We're doing all of those things for our customers. But we have a lot to, I think, internally benefit from on how we make the platform itself better by embracing some of that. So right now our systems get better and better every year because we come up with better engineering practices and better technologies. We could actually build systems that actually maintain and update themselves based on feedback loops and, and some machine learning. So that's one. The other is I look forward to us expanding kind of our footprint, our, our active strategies on how we balance load around the globe. Uh, I expect us to be investing a lot on making that a multi-region global mesh where we can serve a company that's a multinational in ways that no other customer facing company can. And we can give reliability numbers that would astound us today, hmm. right? I think our numbers a year, two years, five years from now 
we'll be adding more nines onto the SLAs. Nice. Yeah, and a part that's probably near and dear to Glenn is the uh, the exciting future is the whole uh, concept of data and data sharing across companies and the access to that data. I mean, the digital revolution is really coming. You know, I have a 17-year-old son who has an iPhone for three years now, and I think he's never made a phone call ever. You know, he's FaceTimes you, he'll, you know, Snapchat and Instagram, whatever it is. There's that revolution that's coming. You know, the telephony is one of those things that's probably dying. And so uh, that that's coming and, and tying all that data, using that to make decisions and to predict things with all the avenues of digital footprint that you can think of, making that accessible to everybody. That's going to be a pretty interesting thing to watch. In the technology field, we like to use the word innovation. It gets thrown out there a lot. What does that mean for both of you? What's your definition of innovation? Well, I don't know if I... Ready to throw out a straight definition or not, but for, <laughs> for me, I, I guess that is one of the things that I'm still proud of for us. So I, I guess I'll answer the question by analogy yeah. uh, or by anecdote. I think I, I have enjoyed watching that the system that we're building now isn't using the same tools and hardware that we had available to us when we started, even on this journey, even, even on Pure Cloud at the beginning of it. The fact that we're not just running virtual servers in the cloud and now we're leveraging the latest and greatest serverless technologies, things like SageMaker, managed runtimes all over the place. We've never stopped learning and never stopped trying You guys know what SageMaker things. is, right? No, oh, of course. of course. Go way back yeah, to yeah, yeah, we did. Sure. Not sure. I a lot of experience with SageMaker. Yeah. I, of course they knew. From the day. <laughs> yeah. 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 Making sages. Yeah. Making sages. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like an herbal thing. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, that's, I assumed. I assumed. Yeah. 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 Big the, time. To me, that's, I guess that's innovation is that willingness to keep going forward and trying new things, possibly with failure. On, on your experiments and to build something either completely new or build it in a completely different way. And I think that's just fundamental to our DNA here. I think mm. we've got a lot of builders and a lot of tinkerers, I believe, as you <laughs> yeah. said. Yeah, because yeah, that's a difficult, that question gets asked a lot and it's really difficult. And I think the harder part, because I think we're always innovating, technology innovates all the time, it's changing all the time. The, the harder thing to differentiate is the incremental versus disruptive. So everybody's incrementally innovating. Like that's what we do. We're always constantly getting the latest tools and all that. But when you, when you disrupt something, and so a good example is like a lot of people thought we, there's no way this could be a cloud solution. Telephony is really hard. You can't do that in the cloud. You're going to fail. That's impossible to do. And so we got a lot of that early on. And we, the fact that we did it and we did it well, I think that was disruptive. Just, you know, face value, look at it. Just the smell test. Just the smell test, if you will. You guys, uh, we could continue our conversation for hours, and uh, Mari and I would continue to learn and glean knowledge and wisdom from you. But thank you for your time. Thank you for taking a moment with us. And thank you for everything that you built uh, and for how it has impacted millions of lives uh, can't be understated. So thank you, guys. Thank you for having us. 